Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode covers what trainers do differently than pet owners. We've identified five main points that we want to share with you. Catching good behavior, management, engagement, addressing problem behaviors, and giving choices. I'm Ursa Acri, a co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado, and I'm going to let my co-hosts introduce themselves. Hey guys, it's Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training, which is an online dog training business. All right, well, as trainers who specialize in coaching clients to work with their dogs, we're in a lot of homes and we observe a lot of dog person relationships. So we get tons of opportunities to see what people are doing right and what they could be doing better. So over and over again, we notice some major differences between how experienced trainers work with their dogs day to day to get the behaviors that we want and how the average person approaches the same tasks. So in this episode of Canine Conversations, we're going to discuss some of those differences and shed a little bit of light on how you can support good behavior as a lifestyle in the same way that a trainer does. So we're going to start right off with catching good behavior. The first, and I think uh, generally the simplest and also maybe the most important thing that I think trainers do differently is that we catch our dogs doing good stuff all the time. I know personally as a busy trainer and a parent, I don't carve out a ton of time for training on a daily basis, but what I do is make sure that my I thank my dogs with reinforcement anytime I catch them doing something I like, such as laying calmly during dinner, pausing before going through the door, uh, checking me checking in with me on a walk, or things like that. Just any behaviors that I see that I'm like, you know, I'd, I'd love to see more of that. Um, so Kayla, talk to me about uh, this concept with your dog. I know that, you know, Barley, your Border Collie is a very active dog who offers a lot of different behaviors. Is this something that you practice with him? Yeah, absolutely. I do this with my own dog. And it's also one of the first things that I recommend for new clients because it really helps get them out of that kind of correction mindset where they're constantly trying to catch their dog doing the bad thing and correcting their dog for doing the bad thing. And it helps them see when their dogs are doing good things and build up that good behavior. Um, and the framework that I usually use to teach this with my clients is called Smart Times 50, with which um, Kathy Sedeo brought to us in her book, Plenty in Life is Free. And that is the concept of counting out 50 different treats or pieces of your dog's kibble. And it's your job over the course of a day to distribute those to your dogs for 50 good things that you see out of your dog every day. And knowing that you need to catch your dog doing at least 50 good things a day helps you notice the things that they're already doing right. And this gets really, really reflexive really quickly for most people. And it's one of the things that I see trainers doing consistently pretty well. Um, and when you've got a dog who's tough to live with, it, you think, um, one of the big things that Smart Times 50 does is it helps you also learn how to catch kind of those least bad behaviors. So I'm sure we've all gotten those emails from clients who, are, who say, my dog barks 24 seven. And we say, oh really, all the time? And with Smart Times 50, it really starts being apparent pretty quickly that the dog actually does spend a fair bit of time doing other things that are less annoying than barking. And it might mean that at times you're catching the dog doing something that you still don't love, like perhaps the dog is still staring at the squirrel through the window, but he's not barking and you can reward that instead. 
Um, and again, one of the biggest things that we see here is that it really helps both the owners understand all the awesome stuff that their dog does already, and it helps the dogs understand what the owners want from them. And this all kind of comes back to a concept that I know Ursa has explained before, where there's a difference between a well-trained dog and a well-behaved dog. And this catching a dog being good really helps with the well-behaved dogs. And those are the dogs that we describe as easy to live with. Versus a well-trained dog is, you know, we've all seen some of those dogs on video or whatever, where it's like the owner flicks their eyes in a given direction and that dog is immediately doing what the owner wanted it to do. And it's not that you can't be both well-trained and well-behaved, but many of us probably would value a well-behaved dog that's easy to live with over a dog that constantly needs to be told what to do, but is extremely compliant with those cues. Yeah. And to be honest, I think most clients, <clears throat> when they're describing the dog that they want, they're describing a well-behaved dog, not necessarily a well-trained the difference, the way I explain it, is well-trained, like you said, Kayla, is responding to cues, whereas well-behaved is just kind of gen generally easygoing and well-mannered. And I think that really is what most clients are going for. Um, so I really feel like this approach helps support that. Um, and then in addition, it's really easy to go on and do the training where you can ask for cued behaviors anytime you like. But um, yeah, I, th I think this this is sort of a foundational approach that builds a dog that's just a pleasure to live with, um, which is, you know, like you said, what we all want. So great. Thanks for that, uh, that input. We're going to move on to number two, which is management. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another major difference that I see between trainers and pet owners is heavy management. So how many times have you all gotten an inquiry from someone who says something like, my dog constantly gets in the trash, or my dog steals things from off the counters, or my dog chews on the siding of my house when I leave him alone in the yard. And that's actually one that I've gotten. <laughs> and you just want to go, oh my gosh, don't let him have access to any of that stuff. <laughs> so I think as trainers, we naturally look at problem behaviors from the standpoint of how is the environment facilitating this behavior? And how can I arrange things in the environment so that it isn't happening anymore? And it's a very um, applied behavior analysis kind of approach, arranging the environment <laughs> to create the behavior we want or not create a behavior. But it's the pinnacle of work smarter, not harder. Yes, I could absolutely train my dog to leave the trash alone. But why would I spend the time doing that when I can just put the trash away in the cabinet? Marissa, let's talk about this. What do you think? Is that an approach that you take with your dog? Yes. It's so funny. I just got an email the other day from a client looking to do private training. And it was very much this, that she has a young dachshund mix. So this dog must be really agile and have longer legs because he keeps getting <laughs> into the trash. And, you know, she says he knows he's not supposed to do it and he continues to do it no matter what we've done. And I haven't met with her yet. And so I'm really excited to hear what they have done. Um, but it's, it, it, that always surprises me. This little short dog is, is getting into, um, <laughs> trash all the time. So, um, a few things I want to say about management is that, uh, I believe it is one of our underutilized best friends. Uh, I find that, most clients believe or think that it's a cop out. I've had a lot of clients say, well, no, I just want him to know that he shouldn't go in the trash. I just want him to know that he should relax no matter what. And lots of times our expectations or training goals are, are 
pretty unrealistic uh, for a living a living being um, so relax all the time that's a that's a pretty large expectation but it's 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 um, I am aren't you yeah <laughs> so people also don't want to be trainers like I did a workshop last weekend and I asked everyone in the audience who here got a dog to become a trainer and nobody raised their hand so um, I think it's important for folks to really lean into this idea of managing um, and preventing the dog's behavior from escalating from getting worse so from a safety perspective but also from a um, we really want to avoid the dog getting reinforced so every single time the dog goes into the trap he gets reinforced and that behavior gets stronger and stronger. Um, and even if sometimes he doesn't get the chicken bone out of the trash, he did that one time and it's a really strong and big jackpot reinforcement that he's going to continue to engage in that behavior. So like Ursa said earlier, I think changing the dog's environment for the dog's success is also for your success. It's it's not a cop-out. Uh, we do this all the time, and I especially do this with my dog because there's certain things that I'll manage and there's certain things that I find necessary to train. So I really try to help clients tease out what is absolutely necessary to train and what can we manage and prevent from happening. So I know Kayla has a really great management story um, um, about barley. So I'll let her chime in here. Well, it's mostly great. Um, we actually just had a trash incident <laughs> last night. Um, Oh, oh, no. <laughs> just uh, just to underscore the need to uh, not just Management say that you're done fail. with your training just because you've uh, you've got a great story to tell about it. Um, yeah. So when I first adopted my Border Collie Barley, he was about three, three and a half, maybe. Um, and he was really fat. So we were working on cutting down his his diet a little bit and getting him to that trim fit Border Collie <laughs> that we all want him to be. Um <laughs> And he just wasn't that listening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's svelte now. He's a... Uh, all the lady dogs like him now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but he just... He wasn't losing weight. He wasn't losing weight. And <clears throat> finally, I realized it was because he was able to get into his dog-proof kibble container. Um, so there's Border Collies for you. Um, so I changed dog that. Dog-proof so doesn't mean... Border collie proof. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like I swear he can just grow opposable thumbs when I'm not looking. Um, but so I got rid of that. I figured out a way to keep him out of the dog proof um, food container, and then we started having some pretty serious trash and counter surfing problems. So he was, you know, getting into the trash, and that's pretty normal. So, you know, we were putting the trash in the bathroom and just closing that door while we were gone, and. Um, but then he started, you know, pulling down other things. And this was only happening while I was at work. So if I was gone for multiple hours, um, put up a video, a camera to make sure it wasn't that he would like had separation anxiety or anything. And it was literally like after we left, he would like lie down for about two hours and then he'd get up and kind of wander around a little bit, wander around the kitchen, poke around a little bit. And usually then he'd go back. But you could see almost every two hours on the hour while I was gone, he would get up and go check the kitchen again. And his standards would get a little bit lower. So by the end of the day, like <laughs> these paper towels with grease on them that he had ignored the first three times he checked, he was like, you know, these are worth shredding now. Um, <laughs> And you could just see him being so bored. Um, and like, 
you know, so that was this whole thing and it got pretty bad to the point where like, I had like this $50 thing of olive oil that we had purchased at Costco when he pulled that down off the counter, um, cause we had left it out. Cause who knows why? Um, and because it's olive the, oil. Because it was That's olive oil. Because, like, whose dog <laughs> pulls down a tin can full of olive oil? Mine does. Yeah. Um, he was also, he was pulling down, like, tomatoes and apples and um, bananas. You know, just, like, stuff that most people can still leave out even though they own a dog. Wooden spoons. <laughs> he, sh- he, like, chewed through a bunch of wooden spoons that had been used for stirring pots or whatever. So the biggest thing that we did was we just had to get really kind of crazy about management because the thing is, I at that point was working 10-hour days. There just was no way to really fix the problem with training. It wasn't like I was going to be able to watch him on a doggy cam and, like, I don't even know what I would have done. You know, like, I was working. Um, So I put a, a piece of paper up on my door that said, stop, is the dog in the crate? If not you need to take time to clear the counters. And what that did is that just reminded me every single time. And it also told me what to do if I didn't have time to go through and clean the kitchen to the level that we needed to have it so that Barley wouldn't find anything. Because at this point, it was also getting to be a safety problem. It wasn't just like, ugh, it's annoying. He's gotten into the trash again. It was like, he's chewing through wooden spoons. Like, he's not ingesting them right now, but he could really hurt himself if he tra- if he actually swallowed some of that stuff. Um And then the other thing we did that really, really helped that is so important when you're doing management is you also need to start figuring out what you would like the dog to do instead. So when you've got the dog, um, you know, we'd clean the counters or whatever, but he clearly was still going to be bored because this was a behavior that, as far as I can tell, was motivated by being a little bit bored, having too much energy because he's a border collie um, and he's a young dog. so what we did was we uh, we would do an Easter egg hunt every day as well. So I would put him in the bathroom for about five minutes and then I would hide frozen Kongs and stuff, puzzle toys and uh, pig's ears and stuff. And I would hide those all over the house, um, all below Barley's chest height so that he learned that what was actually profitable was searching low rather than searching high. And we actually still do that to this day. Um, I don't, now that I live in my car on the road, we don't have quite as many different things to hide for him, but we still almost every day have like an easter egg hunt for him and we just leave all those out and then right as we're about to exit the house we release him from the bathroom and he gets to go on his easter egg hunt and i think one of the most important things about this story for people is a that management is not a cop-out as marissa said it's okay to just be like you know i have a dog that that enforces the very clean counters rule um very strictly and that's okay But it's also really important for a part of management to set up the environment so that you, the human, can succeed. Um, So some other things that I do is I leave Barley's um, hairbrush out where I can reach it when we're cuddling on the bed so that as I'm cuddling him and petting him and I find a little dreadlock in his armpit, I can easily reach something (laughs) to work it out. Um, I leave treats near his poop bag so that I don't forget the treats on walks. I put his toothbrush and toothpaste next to mine and I make sure that it's easy for both of us to get it right. And that was really one of the most important things here. Um, cause I knew like I'd been a trainer for years. I knew that I just had to keep the counters clean, but until I had that sign up reminding me to do it every single time mm-hmm. I left the house, I still wasn't succeeding. Even though how many times a week do I instruct people to do exactly what I was struggling with doing? We are not perfect just because we are dog trainers. <laughs> nope. 
as I said, Barley got into the trash literally yesterday because we yeah. we brought home a bunch of his. We were making his his raw meals for the week, and there was some some containers that had once contained beef liver in the trash, and I just left the trash out. And guess what? He made sure those were really clean. You illustrate a really good point there, which is that most of management is giving your dog a job to do, or a lot of management is giving your dog a job to do so that they're not kind of picking their own job. <laughs> um, you know, because dogs have been in, in instances where we're talking about dogs getting into things or chewing things or being destructive. Um, we're talking about like they've evolved for tens of thousands, as far as we know, maybe more years to scavenge for their food. And we can't bring them into our homes and expect them not to do that. Um, and so, and really to, to even make a broader comparison, they're behaving the only way they know how to behave, which is like dogs. And, and in any situation, we can't expect them not to behave like a dog without any guidance from us. And so, you know, management is just a way for us to sort of, um, preempt those doggy behaviors that we don't like so that we can either keep them from happening in general or keep them from happening so we can train in a replacement behavior. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to just giving your dog enrichment so they don't have a chance to practice. I think it, enrichment is just a big form of management. So um, I think Ursa, you're, yeah, your story Ursa, illustrates that I really think well. when you said that they're behaving like dogs, I think that that's so important for people to understand is that they're not plotting a coup against us. <laughs> and but I think that our, our culture and our society has grown up with statements like he knows dogs better. are here to please us. <laughs> dogs love us unconditionally. And those those really get in the way of actually seeing the dog for a dog instead of our little robots that um, want to do what we say at any given moment. And so um, I'd like our listeners to just think about that, that those those statements um, actually can sometimes be detrimental to our relationship with our canines, um, even though they kind of make us feel warm and fuzzy. But dogs are not here to please us. <laughs> well, and we're actually going to we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, here in just a minute. I think that's an awesome point. And I want to hear more about that from you, Marissa. But first, um, we're going to talk a little bit about one of our sponsors. This episode was sponsored by Canine of Mine, an online dog care resource that aims to provide owners with all the info that they need to be better pet parents. Canine of Mine has tons of great resources, from adoption guides and dog food recommendations to breed profiles and training tips. And a lot of those training tips and behavior resources are written by me, Kayla. I actually worked on creating the dog adoption guide and think it's pretty awesome. It's a three-part guide. And in part one, we created a scorecard that you can use to evaluate different dog adoption candidates and help you calculate the final score to find your dream dog. It's actually an adaptation of the score sheet that I literally use to find my current dog, Barley. And in my opinion, he's perfect. Parts two and three deal with how to help your dog adjust to his new home and what activities you should be doing in the first few weeks to bond together and get started off on the right paw. Canine of Mine also focuses on tons of really common owner FAQs, ranging from what to do if your dog eats a diaper to what kind of dog is best for marathon running owners. Canine of Mine is a fantastic resource for any dog owners looking to take better care of their canine. Check them out at canineofmine.com, and that is the letter K number nine of mine.com. 
All right, we're back and we're going to continue on, move right into point number three, which uh, Marissa touched on a moment ago, and that is just sort of engagement and being the center of your dog's universe. A big part of supporting overall good behavior and something that trainers I think are generally really good at is showing your dog that you're awesome. And it sounds kind of flippant, but really a dog is getting stimulation from the environment pretty much constantly, especially when they're outside. Every moment they're getting sights, sounds, and smells. And if we're just sort of there, kind of just being background noise, um, what's the motivation for them to pay attention to us if we're just kind of the anchor at the end of the leash? This definitely ties in with catching good behavior in Smart Times 50, like we talked about earlier, but it's way more than just that. So it's engaging with your dog, showing them cool places to sniff, being the treat slinger, the ball thrower, kind of the bringer of all good things. Um, I never want my dog to think that I'm not relevant. It doesn't mean that I have to be the center of their universe every second of every day, but I definitely want them to think that I'm generally the best thing going and that anytime I might produce something cool for them to eat or sniff or do. And that's not always contingent on a behavior either. Um, you know, I just generally want my dogs to think like, she's great. I'm going to hang out more with her. <laughs> and I, I kind of compare it to being like in that first early stage of a relationship where you really want the other person to like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, as Marissa mentioned earlier, um, you know, we're sort of socialized to think dogs should do things for us just because, because we're people and they're dogs. And this really goes counter to that notion. It's what, what do I have to bring to the table in the relationship? So Kayla, um, what do you think about that? Is that something that, you know, you would agree? Like, I know that you, you try really hard to be the center of Barley's universe. I don't think you have to try that hard, but <laughs> depends you seem on the to day. do a really good job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this actually, I was just, um, I, well, not just, but this summer I was visiting my dad and we were out visiting one of his college friends. Um, and we're going to diverge into a little bit of a story, but, t but it ties in, I promise. Um, and my dad's college friend was watching Barley and watching his dog kind of run around. And, you know, they, they're in a big, like, 200-acre farm. They're both off-leash. Um, and when I was asking Barley to do stuff, he was doing stuff for me. And when my dad's friend Ralph was asking his dog Buddy to do stuff for him, Buddy was totally blowing him off. And Ralph kind of looks at me and goes... You know, my dog, Buddy is nothing like Barley. He just doesn't want to please me. He, like, Barley lives to make you happy. Mm. And I, we were a couple beers into a social situation, so I didn't give him the lecture <laughs> that I wanted to. Um, but I wrote a blog post later about my dog doesn't want to please me. What do I do? Because it, it really tied into this idea where what Ralph wasn't seeing and what I kind of tried to show him later without saying anything was that... Barley wasn't doing it, wasn't listening to me just because he wanted to please me. He was listening to me because if he listened to me, I threw the ball. If he listened to me, I produced a little bit of chicken. Um, versus Buddy, if he listened all, at all, was mostly listening to avoid Ralph yelling. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that to judge Ralph at all. It's just the idea that one of the biggest things that we do is we, we try to be the center of our dog's universe. And I do a lot of off-leash hiking with my dog, so this is really important to me because... On one hand, Barley's a border collie, and that tends to make this easy because he is bred for generations to be, you know, to be interested biddable. in me and be biddable mm -hmm. and work off-leash in distracting environments. Because if you've got a sheep herding dog that doesn't listen off-leash, you've got a pretty crappy sheep dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but... 
that that doesn't mean that I haven't done any work with Barley, and I still sometimes mm-hmm. struggle with the fact that I often don't throw the stick when Barley brings it to me, but strangers almost always do, and we still struggle with him sometimes running off to go play with strangers instead of with me, because I am not the bringer of all good things in some situations. But what this all comes back to is that your treats and what you have in your pocket doesn't have to be better than what is going on outside. So my treats in my pocket are probably never going to be more interesting than that moose that we could see while we're hiking in Colorado or the ocean that we're walking by now every day in Costa Rica. But our relationship does have to be better than that. And it does have to be more interesting. So that brings it back to building up your bank account, which is something that I know Susan Friedman talks about all the time. And that is the idea that when you're working with your animal, you are either putting stuff into that trust bank account or you're taking it out. And there are going to be times where you have to take it out because there are times where you know your dog might have to do a drug, blood draw or might have to do something that your dog doesn't like. But if as much as possible, when you're interacting with your dog, you're doing awesome stuff and you're bringing awesome stuff to your dog, then those days where you do have to call your dog to take him away from the dog park, or you do have to take him to the vet for a blood draw or whatever, it's not the end of the world and it's not catastrophic to your relationship. And in fact, your dog is probably happy to do it because the other 999 times that you guys interacted this month, it was awesome. So Marissa, I know you have a bunch of stuff to say about this as well. And you were just starting off on a super great track when we broke for ads. So what do you want to say about this? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I, I uh, ask my clients to pay attention to is whether or not the reward that they're providing to their dog is reinforcing to their dog. Yes. Not this. necessarily <laughs> reinforcing to them. Um, you know, folks will ask me, oh, well, can I just pat him on the head? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's see. Ask him to sit and pat him on the head and let's see what he does. Um, <laughs> and lots of times dogs like dip their head or move away or they're like, I'm done with this training session. (laughs) That's not a reward. It may be a reward like in, um, in the eyes of the trainer, but it's not a reward in the eyes of the learner. And we need to be paying attention that whatever we're using to increase behavior and make behavior, um, you know, go up and happen more often. If we want those choices to happen more often, we need to make sure that we're using rewards that our dogs like. Um, And physical touch might not be it. Physical touch might be it for a different dog. Play might be a reinforcement. Different types of food might be a reinforcement. Um, or on Ursa's blog, she wrote a really great article, and we actually did a podcast about it, uh, talking about how to u- use food appropriately in, in training sessions if that's an actual reward that your dog likes. Um, and so I think it's, it's which most dogs do. Um, did I tell, I, I don't remember if I told my, my blueberry story in that podcast, but I'm going to tell did. it again. Really, Did I? Okay. You can absolutely tell it again. A client of mine in a group training class insisted that her dog loved blueberries more than anything else in the world. And that's what she was going to bring his treats. And I was like, go for it. Um, And knowing that how this was probably going to shake out. So she brings her (laughs) beautiful, amazing, lovely golden retriever to class with this pint full of blueberries. And dog takes like one or two blueberries before the dog realizes that the neighbor the neighboring student has bacon. And then the dog is like out at the end of his leash, drooling, staring at this other student waiting for bacon, which like maybe the dog does like blueberries, but clearly they're not as reinforcing (laughs) as actual cooked bacon. But point being, 
the dog chooses what they what is reinforcing mm-hmm. to them, and the dog chooses what is interesting um, or rewarding to them, not us. So, like you yeah, said, and that- not all reinforcement is the same. Like you're like a blueberry might be a dollar an hour, whereas like bacon's thirty dollars <laughs> an hour, right? And so I think it's important that we are paying attention to what our dogs like and in what context our dogs like those reinforcers. So yeah. um, if Great the point. behavior is not going up your reward is not reinforcing. And so um, that's just a simple little tidbit that you can take when you're uh, training with your dog. And so then therefore go ahead and try to find a different reinforcement. We wouldn't go back to work if we didn't get paid unless you just really want a volunteer job. Um, But we wouldn't go back to work if we didn't get paid. And so our dogs need our dogs and their behavior needs to get paid just as often. Well, and to kind of tie this back to our main point, which is, you know, being engaging your dog and being the bringer of all good things, um, you know, we kind of got off on this reinforcement track, but it's because at its core, we continue, generally, we willingly continue to engage in relationships because they are reinforcing to us. So, you know, like, I don't have a lot of friends that are big partiers because that's not really something that I find reinforcing, right? So... Generally, in my relationships, um, the ones that I willingly maintain and am eager to maintain, it's with other people who um, bring things to the table that are reinforcing to me. Um, And it's not that that makes everybody else a bad person. It's just that they're not providing things that I find reinforcing. And so I think we have to carry that same um, attitude over into our relationship with our dogs. It's not just all about us. Um, And probably the example that I just talked about made it sound like it was, but I, hopefully I'm also bringing things to the table in those relationships that keep those people coming back to spend time with me. And so it's a give and take. It's not just, well, you're doing this all for my benefit. It's, it's both of us putting things into the relationship that make it grow and make it stronger. And we need to be doing that with our dogs, not just expecting them to always cater to us. Um, so Kayla, did you have something else that you wanted to, to throw in there? I'm sorry. Yeah, just before we go off, because I know we, we're actually kind of digging into this one more than we should, but I have something um, that I just wanted to bring up. And I think one of the things that often I see people doing when they're trying to do this, but they don't just quite get it right, is what they try to do is they make the environment less reinforcing to the dog. Mm. And in some ways, yes, that absolutely has to happen. I w- I'm working on teaching Barley to bow on cue. I'm not going to go practice that at the dog park right now. Um, I'm practicing that in a boring environment. But I think what I see a lot of people do wrong, and I'm sure you guys have seen as well, is they try to implement these really austere, like nothing in life is free sort of regimes where the dog is engaging with you because the dog has literally nothing else to do. And at at its extreme, what we see is the dog is crated 23 hours a day. And of course the dog is going to engage in training if the other option is being in the crate. So it's, and that in some ways is people trying to follow this, this, this tip. But one of the important things is it doesn't mean that we want to be taking stuff away from the rest of the environment. It's that we want to be making us more exciting, not making the environment less exciting. Am I making this clear? Because obviously there are times where you need to make the environment a little bit less exciting so that you can actually get training done. 
I think um, I think that side of it is management. So yeah. if you're if you're taking your dog into an area where there might be a lot of competing reinforcers that you just can't compete with and you're and you're not ready to compete with, that's where you would implement management. So if, you know, like a perfect example, off-leash hiking. We, you know, we live in Colorado and tons of people go, oh, I want to take my dog hiking off-leash. And it's this dog that they just adopted like two months ago and they don't have a strong enough relationship yet to be able to trust each other with that in that scenario. Um, they don't have a reinforcement history built up. They don't have, you know, again, that depth of relationship where the dog will trust them to make the choice to come away from something they really want. Um, and so in those cases, it's management, not deprivation. It's not don't ever take your dog hiking until you're more interesting than what, what, el what else is going on. It's just use, use management, you know, don't put your dog in a situation where they can make the wrong choice. And we'll talk a little bit more about that um, later. That's giving choices is number five on our list. But I want to go ahead and move on to number four, which is problem behaviors. And this is a big one, a really, really big one, because I would say as trainers, problem behaviors are, are a lot of what we deal with. Um, but trainers treat problem behaviors a lot differently than pet owners do. I can think of a lot of pet owners that have a problem behavior crop up and then they automatically think, how can I communicate to the dog that this is bad? And that can be really tricky because you start going down the road of punishment, which really should be an absolute last resort and has to be used just so skillfully in order for it to work and not have serious fallout. But trainers see a problem behavior and we think, what would I like my dog to do instead? And then they set the dog up to be successful with that behavior and make it more reinforcing for the dog to do something appropriate, appropriate instead of problem behavior. So another facet of that is catching behaviors early. You know, we've all heard from clients over and over and over again, um, I'm at my wit's end with my dog. They lose their mind when we walk past another dog. All my neighbors avoid us like the plague. I dislocated my shoulder from the lunging and I just can't take it anymore. And then you ask, well, when did the problem behavior begin? And they say, oh, gosh, let's see. It was probably about five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like months or years of practicing the problem behavior. How difficult is that going to be to turn around? It ties in with what we said earlier about management and not letting the, the behavior be practiced. There's a saying, what, what fires together wires together. And that means the neurons in the brain that are firing together are wiring together and creating this neural pathway for that behavior to be easier and easier and easier and more reflexive. Um, but a good trainer will see the beginning of a problem. So maybe the dog is starting to whine or be overly attentive to other dogs on walks. And then they dig right in and start working on an intervention. So we don't let it get to the point where we've mm -hmm. lost our minds and we're getting ready to turn the dog back yeah. into the shelter. <laughs> um, so Marissa, let's talk to you a little bit about um, how you treat problem behaviors with your dog. Yeah, I think it's um, poor, <clears throat> poor clients. I have, I know that you guys do too. We have a lot of empathy for clients because they don't really know what to do. And then they hope, I don't know if you've heard this, he'll grow out of this, right? Um, you know, they, oh, yeah. they hope that this is just a phase and doing really skilled dog training, especially when you have a problem behavior such as Ursa was talking about, like barking and lunging at, an, at another dog or something that's emotionally um, 
concerning the dog and 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 having them escalate to the point where they are very upset um, it is really hard for our clients to actually know what to do and I think that that's why it does become this well he started that five years ago but I was keeping my fingers crossed <laughs> right. that, that that would actually get better um, but in terms of counter conditioning so changing the dog's association of that stimulus I think it's really important to state that when your animal is concerned about, let's say, like my dog was barking and lunging at other dogs, um, he was very worried about the sight of other dogs. And it seems counterintuitive, but this is actually the better route to go is to, is to actually remove your dog from the stimulus so that they're not eliciting that, that really large barking and lunging behavior. We don't want to expose, like overexpose them and then punish the behavior. We actually want to train at a level that they feel comfortable, they can think, they can make different choices in the presence of that trigger. So sometimes my clients will say, whoa, I feel like I'm making my dog's world smaller and I'm not socializing him. And, and, I, and I usually say, well, actually you are socializing him to the trigger, but you're doing it at a level that he can handle. Um, and so when I moved to Colorado five years ago, uh, like we have been saying, there's off-leash hiking. Um, I had to work really hard to help Sully feel really good in the presence of other dogs. And we started making his world smaller where he's feeling really good and we were getting different choices. And then we would gradually expand that world and socialize him to other dogs based on his reaction, not whether or not I wanted to move forward. So it was it, it seems counterintuitive, but it, it, it does work because you're, you're setting your dog up for success and you're, you're putting more positive experiences into the positive experience bank or the um, relationship bank that Susan Friedman talks about. So I think it's important to be mindful of whether how your dog is feeling during the training sessions. Yeah. I agree. I think that's, you know, that's one thing, you know, again, that kind of ties into that engagement is just sort of keeping, keeping an eye on your dog's pulse and how they're feeling and, um, what is stressful for them and, and what, what of those stressful stimuli might be causing the bad behavior it kind of ties in with everything we've been talking about really. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, Kayla, could you talk a little bit about, um, sort of our first point, um, you know, how we approach problem behaviors instead of resorting to punishment? Um, you know, like I said, I, I tend to think, how can I, how can I get my dog to do something else instead? And is that an approach that you would say you take as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things that we try to do always is, like my two main questions whenever I'm looking at a problem behavior are WTF, what's the function? Why is the dog doing this? What is, <laughs> what is rewarding the dog for this behavior? Or what is the dog escaping by doing this behavior? Um, and then what would we like the dog to do instead? So, um, you know, if we've got a dog who barks at the window, why is he doing that? He's probably doing that for some sort of territorial reason or he's nervous about people or whatever. And what is happening is people, because they're walking by on the sidewalk, they just keep walking and the dog's barking has, you know, functionally it's worked. Um, and what would we like the dog to do instead? And really when people call me about that particular problem, one of the first steps that I say is figure out how to cover your windows right. so that your dog <laughs> isn't on guard duty 24-7. <laughs> um, 
and then we figure out how to teach him that people walking by actually means chicken happens in the kitchen. So then he's running to the back of the house and getting chicken instead of barking at the front of the house. Um, and all this also comes into really learning how to read dog body language and then advocating for your dog when you need to. So I know that my dog, Barley, he's generally pretty friendly with people, but he doesn't really like being touched and he really doesn't like having people in his face. He would much mm -hmm. rather play fetch or tug with you than have you touch him. Um, and I'm constantly watching strangers who are trying to play with him. Like every time he brings them the stick, they try to ruffle the fur on the top of his head and you can see him just like he like licks his lips and he cringes and he backs away, but he really wants them to throw that stick. And mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest things that I really have to do, because I bring him a lot of places, he comes to coffee shops for work with me and whatever, is I always have to be telling people, you know, hey, he's friendly, he wants to come say hi, but he often doesn't really like being touched and he definitely doesn't want you in his face. And that took a lot of learning for us to figure out how to do. And it's still really hard for me because I really like making people happy. And I've had people be very rude with me before when I've asked them not to put their face in my dog's face. And that's really hard for me, but it's also really important because he will growl and he has even snapped at people when they put their face in his face for too long if he's stressed out enough. And rather than punishing him for that, what I really try to do is I advocate for his space. I do a lot of counter conditioning where you know, will he gets called away from those people and then I give him a treat so that he learns that he doesn't have to stand there if he doesn't want people in his face. He can back away totally. and I'll give him a treat. And that comes back to choices, which I know is our next step. Um, yeah, and again, it's body language and being able to read those things before they get to be mm -hmm. huge problems. So if I notice that his pupils get really big or he kind of freezes for a split second or whatever, then I know that we need to get out of that situation right away. And I think a lot of people often wait a little bit too long and they wait until the bite has already happened rather than catching it when it's just flared whiskers or a dropped tail or a hitch mm -hmm. in the dog's breathing. Um, and that's mm -hmm. hard to learn how to see but it's so, so important and it's so, so helpful with these dogs that have problems and even dogs that don't have problems. My dog Barley is an incredible helper dog and he's incredibly social. He just doesn't like people staring eye to eye to him three inches from his face. And you know what? I don't like that with strangers either. <laughs> totally. Right. And it's you know, so you make, appropriate. you make a really good point. I think the paradigm of let the problem behavior happen so that we can punish it is so ingrained in our mm -hmm. um, attitude about dogs. It's so hard to get away from. And it really, the point was really driven home for me once years ago, like 10 years ago, I was teaching reactive dog classes and I had a client come up to me afterwards at the end of the class, like six weeks had gone by, their dog had done amazingly well, could walk past other dogs without losing its mind. And they go, you know, I don't really think that this worked because my dog didn't react the whole time. And I was just like, no, say that, <laughs> say that again out loud. And what, what it was, when I talked to them a little more, I discovered that their expectation was that we're going to put the dog in a situation they can't handle. We're going to evoke the problem behavior and then we're going to punish the dog to tell them that they're wrong. Whereas my approach and most modern dog trainers approach is exposure to the trigger at a low level, and then either counter conditioning the dog to feel more comfortable with the trigger or training an alternative behavior or both. Um, and hopefully never letting the dog go over threshold to where they're losing their mind because of all those things we talked about, because what fires together wires together and because we're putting the dog in over their head. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see 
people really struggle with the idea of not punishing problem behavior, but helping the dog to learn how to make better choices instead. Um, because it, I think it's in our nature to want to say like, no, that's wrong. Quit doing that. <laughs> um, so it's a real paradigm shift for owners and a lot of dog trainers too. I mean, I think, you know, punishment is reinforcing to the punisher, um, as, as we always like to say. And so it can be really hard to step back and say, okay, how can I how can I deal with this differently? How can I help the dog do better rather than telling them um, what they're doing wrong? So let's go on to number five, our last point here today. And this is a complex one. And I think we could do an entire episode just on this topic, um, multiple episodes just on this topic. So let's just touch a little bit on giving your dog choices. And this is an area that I don't think pet owners think about much at all, um, only because it's just, it's such a new concept in general. And that's encouraging the dog to have choices and have some control over what happens to them. Um, and my business partner, Kimberly, uh, has this great little spiel that she gives to, to owners that she works with. And it's who decides when your dog eats. And the owner always says, well, me, who decides when your dog goes to the bathroom? Well, I do. Who decides when it's time to go for a walk? Well, me. Um, and then who decides all of those things for you, the human? And they're like, well, I decide those things for myself. And that really illustrates the fact that like their dog has no say in what happens to them during the day. Even the tiniest little things about, um, you know, their bodily functions are determined by us. So they, they get very little choice and control in their lives. And modern trainers and behaviors think of choice and control as crucial, as crucial to an individual's emotional and mental well-being as food and water and safety. So with all the studies being done and knowledge that we're gaining in the field of animal cognition, we've really learned that dogs and other non-human animals aren't just input-output machines, but their emotions, as far as we can tell, are really similar to ours. And having control of what happens to them and learning that their behavior can control their environment is a crucial part of being emotionally well-adjusted. So the big way that this manifests for me as a trainer, and incidentally also as the parent of a toddler, <laughs> is that there is no or else either overt or implied in my training. So there's no do this or suffer the consequences, do this or face punishment. Now, that's not to say that I don't use negative punishment where I might remove something, um, you know, to the example of my toddler, like, well, if you're, if you're going to break that, I'm going to take it away from you. <laughs> but generally speaking, I try to use as little coercion or as little threat as, as humanly possible. And I almost always give my dogs the option to opt out of something that I've asked. So there are times where I may have to insist that they do something like, you know, in uh, an examination situation where they have to go to the vet and have something unpleasant done. But, um, more often than not, if I ask them to do something and they opt not to do it, I don't care. Um, if it's a safety issue, if it's like we're going off leash and I'm worried that my dog is going to make the wrong choice if I ask them to come back to me, I don't let them into that situation. Um, but in, on a day-to-day -day basis, like if I ask them to sit and they don't sit, not the end of the world. There is no reason for me to jump in and go, you know what, do it or else. Um, so I'm not going to set them up to fail and make a bad choice if I think it's likely to happen. But throughout the day, those times where I can allow them to make choices, I'm going to do it because that gives them a sense of agency. Um, it strengthens our relationship because they trust that when they say no, I'm going to honor that. 
and it enhances their emotional well-being because they start to learn that they have some control over what happens and that, and that their behavior is their own, really. So, um, Kayla, is that something that you do with Barley? Um, and is that something that you encourage your clients to do? And I'd love to hear how you talk to your clients about this if you do. Yeah, absolutely. I, what I really try to tell my clients with stuff about choices is I just have this mantra of it's all information. And I try actually to leave. I've been doing this more and more lately. Actually, this has been kind of a new thing for me in the last couple of months, but I try to actually leave things out in the environment for my dog during training scenarios that are interesting to him and not necessarily as a as a way to proof a behavior, which is, you know, the, the mm -hmm. idea that we're trying to teach them to ignore those things. And that could be part of what's going on as well. But it's also because I want to know if my dog is getting disinterested or stressed or frustrated or tired with our training session. And if we're in a totally barren training room, I think most dogs will continue to engage with us longer than they might actually want to because there's nothing else to do. Versus if we give yeah. him, you know, and, and think of it like a classroom, you know, it, when you're in, when you were in your last classroom or your last exam room, you probably focused pretty well because you didn't have your phone with you. Um, I'm thinking, you know, an exam <laughs> where you literally don't, you, you're not allowed to have your phone in there. Um, and there's nothing for you to do, but put your pen to that paper <clears throat> and do the exam. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but that is different from giving a lecture that's so riveting that even though people have their laptops open with literally the whole internet at their fingertips, they're paying attention to you. Um, and that's what I try to do with my dog. So, you know, like yesterday when we were working on teaching him to bow, I actually left his toys out as well. And at one point in between some repetitions of working on bow, he walked away from me and grabbed a toy. And that to me was a signal that, okay, this training session has gone on too long. I've made it a little bit too hard. He might be a little bit tired because bow is actually kind of hard on your dog's core and back. Um, and it's time to be done now. And I think that's really important <clears throat> for people to understand. And it's really important to give those options. And the biggest thing that I do for my clients when I'm teaching them to allow their dogs to opt in and out of things is I actually have them toss treats away from them. And then we can see what your dog does as he's coming back to you from collecting that treat. Because if you toss that treat and your dog comes rocketing back to you and starts offering that behavior again, then we know the training session is going really well. But if we see the dog kind of going out and grabbing the treat and then sniffing a little bit and stopping for a bit of water on the way back and then like sighing and then sitting down and then offering his paw for shake, then we know the training session isn't going as well and we need to figure out how to change something. And I know that doesn't totally sound like it's choice, but it is because it's paying attention to what your dog um, is telling you and then giving them the option to do other stuff. And the last thing that I'll say about choice, because I know I'm kind of going on here, is um, to shift gears a little bit. It's the idea of pat, pet, pause. And we've talked about this a lot with all of our dogs, I think. And as I've said before on this podcast, my own dog, Barley, does not necessarily like being touched a whole lot. And when I first got him, um, he did not really tolerate petting at all. He would just move away. Um, and I've had him now for about two years. And I've primarily done what's called pat, pet, pause with him when I want to handle him. And because I like petting him, I want him to enjoy petting. Um, <laughs> 
but rather than just you know chasing him around and touching him until he gives up because that's not really a great way to teach him to enjoy being patted um i'll call him over to me and that's the pat part of this you know hey buddy you want to come on over here and then i'll pat him a little bit you know and i i I'll experiment a little bit and see, try a different type of petting every so often. And then I pause. I take my hands away and see what he does. And if he paws at me or he moves closer or he headbutts me, um, then I know that what I was just doing, he enjoyed and he's in the mood for petting. And over about two years of doing this, I now have a dog who will flop on his back over my belly and ask for belly rubs. And that is just something I never expected him to do when I adopted him. Because he's learned that if... If I'm petting him in a way he doesn't like, he can always say no thank you. He can always opt out. And it's made him say yes more often because, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm choice. not going to listen to him when he says no, then he's never going to say yes. Because why would he, why would he give me an inch if he knows I'm going to take a mile? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's hard for us to, um, you know, as people who cohabitate with dogs, we really want to feel like our dog's want to interact with us when we want to interact with them. But remembering that they are individuals, autonomous individuals with their own thoughts and feelings and needs and wants is really important. And they might not always feel like being touched, <laughs> just like we we don't. Yeah. Well, that's a great, uh, a great point. And one other thing that I want to touch on really quickly was you talked about um, gathering information. And that's something I try really hard to stress to, to uh, owners during training sessions is, especially when we're capturing, which is when we're in training when we're waiting for the dog to kind of guess the right answer so we can provide reinforcement for it. When they're not doing it, that's okay. They're still learning what works and what doesn't work to get what they want. They're gathering information. There's no need for us to punish a dog for getting the wrong answer. Um, If it's so crucial that we feel we need to provide punishment for the wrong choice, to me, that means we're putting our dog in over their heads and we're asking for too much and they're not ready for that situation. But when we're just training behaviors, you know, sit, hand targeting, leash walking, that sort of stuff, there's no need for us to punish our dog for getting the wrong information um, or for getting making the wrong choice. They're, they're gathering information is what they're doing and they're learning what works and what doesn't. And all of that supports them in getting the right answer and making the right answer that much stronger when they do reach it. So Yeah, and it lets us know Great. what we need to do differently in our next training session to, <clears throat> to make it a little bit better. Um, you yeah, know, I was work- yeah. I was working on proofing the other day with Barley's off-leash stuff, and um, some horses walked by, and he kept doing off-leash healing with me, and that was great. Um, but then, you know, f- five minutes later, um, a pelican dove into the ocean, and Barley broke after it. And it was like, okay, so horses we can do, pelicans we can't. Pelicans we need to work around pelicans still, um, which is great. Like I would rather dinosaurs. have a dog that chases pelicans yeah. than a dog that chases horses. All right. Well, we've covered five main points, which include catching good behavior, management, engaging your dog, how to address problem behaviors, and giving dogs choice and control. I think we could come up with quite a few more examples of things that trainers do differently with their own dogs to support good behavior. Um, And we could definitely revisit this topic in the future. We would love to hear your input. Um, Trainers, what do you do differently from your clients that you think contributes to your household harmony? Uh, Email us at hello at canineconvos.com to chime in. We want to thank you guys so much for joining us today. I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado, and you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. 
I'm Ursa Acri. I'm a co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. And you can find us online at canismajortraining.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find me online at journeydogtraining.com. Before we go, we want to make sure that you know to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. That's canine, all spelled out. We'd love to hear from you. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. Our logo is from Walker Hooper, and you can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. <laughs>